Welcome to the Eagle and Child podcast, where we share the stories and thoughts of church history's heroes to inspire and equip the church of today. I'm your host, Leila Nahavandi. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello and welcome to the Eagle and Child podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today. I'm super excited to be interviewing one of my brand new friends, another fellow Theosu lecturer. His name is Matt Van Nostrom, and we're going to be talking about a heretic, condemned heretic today, uh, Marguerite Poret. Um, so welcome, Matt. It's so good to have you. Thank you. It's so good to be here. And she she was she was condemned as a heretic. So yeah, yeah. So we'll flesh that out. We'll flesh that out. Um, but Matt is just an absolute genius. He has lots of degrees in Bible and theology. He also did a master's at Princeton. Um, so just absolutely. Um, an expert in this sort of area. And he's also doing his PhD right now at Bangor University. Um, So very privileged and honoured to have you on, Matt. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about Marguerite Porette. Yeah, so it's probably a name that not many (laughs) people are familiar with for a variety of reasons, Uh, first of which is that as as you've already mentioned she was she was <laughs> condemned she was burned at the stake as a heretic i wow. will leave that particular decision uh up to your mm. up to your <laughs> listeners and viewers <laughs> as to whether she deserved that mm. uh and uh was condemned as such there are some things in her only extant writing uh, that certainly point in that direction, but there mm. were certainly some other things that were going on both politically, culturally, and also personally that mm. fed into this this culmination at at the stake. Uh, but yeah, wow. where 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 do we start? Yeah, where can would you, you give like us maybe? Yeah, maybe just a little bit of a background into who um, this lady is. What was her spiritual formation? Where did she come from? Where is she sort of situated in history? Um, A background on her life would be great. Yeah, so we're not exactly certain what year she was born. Um, We know that she was martyred, well, say martyred, she was burned at the (laughs) stake uh, in the year 1310, so at the very beginning of the 14th century. We estimate that she was probably somewhere in her early to late 30s, 40s, somewhere, somewhere, maybe midlife, uh, when when she was burned. Um, But again... (sighs) The reason that we don't really have many documents about her may be because that she came from a lesser-known family in in France, because that's that's uh, where where she was born. That's where she wrote. That's where she lived. That's that is where she was she was burned at the stake at in Paris. Um, so the lack of other documentation could be simply uh, because the family that she came from didn't keep those kind of documents, although. That is unlikely because mm. the the level of um, the level of finesse in her writing seems to suggest that she was trained 
in writing to a certain extent. She was at, she was also wow. very familiar with uh, courtly etiquette. And so mm. some think that she may have actually come from uh, a royal line or in a royal family, some, something to do with, with the royals in Paris. Uh, Philip the wow. Fourth, also known as Philip the Fair, was, was reigning at this time. And he, he, gets the, he gets that name because he portrayed himself as a champion of, of the faith, although there were, there were times that he took things to, uh, to somewhat of, of an extreme. Uh, not only against Marguerite <laughs> or it, but Philip, Philip IV is also the French king who was the first to begin chipping away at the Knights Templar. And so he actually um, also burned a good number of Templar knights at the stake as wow. well uh, because of things that were, that were going on in that society. But if Marguerite did come from a royal line, it may be that the, the shame of her being condemned as a heretic uh, perhaps led to her family or mm. others simply you know, dissipating with her reference. Erasing her from history, yeah. Yeah, exactly, or yeah. at least trying to. Mm. And whether or not she came from, like, you know, one of the more poor uh, areas of society or whether she came from mm. a royal family or even somewhere in between, it may also be that the lack of other documentation could just be connected to her condemnation as a heretic in an attempt okay. uh, for, for the inquisitors and the mm. church officials to erase her from the scene, although they did not uh, do a, a perfect or a complete job of it because mm. we do have a few extant manuscripts. Uh, some of them, yeah. I think one of them, is in Old French, which is actually what she wrote in, which is mm. which is another thing that caused problems and caused mm. waves for Marguerite, uh, because number one, she was writing theology in a what they would have called a vulgar language, what we would say now, just sort of like the vernacular language, um, mm. and that was that was a no no. Because if you were going to write theology or be spiritual in any way, you were to you were to write in Latin because mm. uh, you didn't want any kind of stray spiritual ideas getting into the mm. hands of, of the common <laughs> of the common people. Um, and so the fact that she wrote in uh, what we call Old French um, led to the very quick popularization of her writings mm -hmm. and so it was copied and lent and disseminated quickly among wow. among people because they weren't used to having this kind of a theological writing it's not not what you, what you think of in terms of of what theology would have looked like in that day and certainly not what it, what it would look like today. Um, but it definitely had a theological backdrop to it. And so mm. people in France, especially, especially women, but not, not just women. Of course, mm. the fact that she was a female author did appeal, uh, to women who were both in mm. her class of society and, and in other, in other groups. Um, but it, it just really appealed to people. And so, mm. They were reading this, and because they weren't 
really familiar with a lot of theological church concepts or ideas, people were mm-hmm. taking it as as face value, and that really shook the officials in the church. As mm-hmm. far as who and what she was, uh, from what we know, mm-hmm. she is what we would call a, a, a begin, which... Mm-hmm. Um, is a kind of a of a of a woman who practiced an ascetic or a as we would say a mystical lifestyle in mm. the you know the the medieval era that that period of a few hundred years in which the ascetic lifestyle just really rose to mm. a lot of popularity. And so the thing with the Beguines were that they were not a part of any kind of official uh, ascetic or mendicant society. So they weren't, uh, they weren't like a Dominican, they weren't Augustinians, nothing of that nature. And that, that fad really took off um, within, I'll say, probably between the years of like, 1200 to 1500 like those 300 years it was really really popular um, mainly among women because it gave them the ability to enter a contemplative lifestyle without having to make the same kind of commitments uh, and really dedicating themselves to the church or to a specific order that a lot of the other um, you know, a lot, a lot of the nunneries would have required mm. or a lot of the official church abbeys. And so mm. that was another thing that really rocked the boat for the established <laughs> church at that time because at one of the, one of the councils, uh, they had already stopped the official formation of any new kind of religious or spiritual orders. So mm-hmm. no more official groups uh, would be would be permitted by papal authority. And so if someone wanted to live and a contemplative ascetic life, they would have to join one of the 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 three major monastic orders or one of the other one of the other established existing orders mm-hmm. um, at that day, and I guess the Beguines kind of came in late on on that pad yeah. because they wanted to <laughs> miss the heart. Yeah, yeah, they wanted to exist as their own club and as their own order, but there was no official way to actually get that started, mm-hmm. and. Other than that, there, there were essentially two types of what we call Beguines, um, whether they identified themselves this way or not at that time. Uh, but there were those who were like Marguerite, who were more of the the loners. They lived by themselves. They lived on their own. Not only did they not submit uh, to any kind of church hierarchical authority, but they also rejected any kind, really any kind of hierarchy or or structure, um, even within their own lives, and so they they were also rejecting the more formal uh, begin or begin depends on how you how you pronounce that that word from French, which basically comes from an old language, most likely 
French. We don't really know exactly what it means, but they mm-hmm. we think that it has something to do with a um with the type of clothes that people were wearing in that day and Okay. <laughs> As close as we can get to it, it was most likely uh, kind of like a, almost like an insult. You might say like that, ah, that okay. person looks very begine or looks very begin mm. uh, because they were just sort of wearing uh, very drab colors, very simple mm, clothes. Okay. Um, but anyways, the, the, other, the other group of begins congregated into space. Uh, communities into small villages even mm-hmm. into small towns and they would all live communal lives even even within the community of the begins that would differ drastically between oh. orders or or within certain areas because for example there was actually a beguinage in Paris and it uh was it was totally walled off from the rest of the city there were several hundred Begins who lived within this particular oh. community, and neither the church nor necessarily the the crown really liked this because mm. they they existed out of the official mm. hand structural order of the church. So, like the church sense. really didn't know mm. what they were doing or what was going on mm. in these begins. Um, and the the crown, but particularly in France, and then also in the Germanic kingdoms where where the Beguines also lived, they were okay with their existence as long as they had some form of contact or representative, like in the in the, in the boards that that existed in these begottages because there would be like there would be the headmistress and then there mm. would sometimes be a few representatives uh from one of the mendicant orders specifically the dominicans they they seem okay. to to um to work alongside the begottages really well and so the begottages liked it this way because the mm. reason that they were either grouping together and living in these communities or living on their own as single begins is because they did not want Big Brother, so to speak, peering mm. into their lives. They wanted to live quiet, ascetic, mm. contemplated lives, but not have to go along uh, with the the rigorous schedules and expectations that you would get in a lot of the other monastic orders and such. And so... Marguerite was not one of the Begines who lived in the community. She lived off by herself. So she was like the extreme within the within the extreme. And yeah. that certainly did not help her in her case because not only would she always refuse to say anything to any of the inquisitors, to any of the bishops that she was brought before, uh, but she also only had one in-person supporter, a guy by the name of Gerard, uh, or Guy Gayard. I don't know. I'm not good with the the old <laughs> French names, <laughs> but G I R A D Gerard. And she had she had one guy who stood up uh, and spoke on her behalf, 
and then eventually he recanted once they imprisoned him for a year. Oh my gosh. He just said, no, nah, I'm not. I'm not do it. Um, so yeah, she was, she was definitely a, a loner. She must have had some kind of a patron who supported her, or she may have been living on her own money if she did come from a more well-to-do family or line. Um, either way, we, we don't know. We don't know which family line that she came from specifically. We don't know if she had any sort of wealthy patron that was behind the scenes who was supporting her. Uh, because that was, of course, necessary if you were living on your own as a Beguin. Whereas if you were living in a community, there was more of this very mm. informal system of of working and sewing. And they, mm. would, they, they would make a lot of things and sell them to then uh, support the, the Beguinage of, of, of where they lived. Wow. So aside from her book, which is uh, the, the Mirror for Simple Souls, and the brief historical accounts of, of her Inquisition, her trial, um, mm. and then her, her condemnation and burning at the stake, we really don't have any other kind of biographical information mm. uh, for her. She's a little bit of, of an enigma uh, who almost was erased from history, almost was wow. stamped out and just barely, mm. barely survived. And really her, her works um, weren't really known until like the last maybe hundred years when in academia, that mm. interest in medieval mysticism began to begin to pick back up again. But what's interesting, wow. what's really interesting is that as far, as far as we can tell, the writing this this particular book, uh, The Mirror of Simple Souls, in some way may have influenced a guy by the name of Meister Eckhart, who was mm. who was also a a mystic who lived in in Germany around the same time. So sometime in the in the early or late thirteenth century, early fourteenth century. Um mm. He was also condemned as a heretic, but was not burned. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> but uh, but but my, but Meister Eckhart's ideas seem to draw somewhat on Marguerite, who probably wrote a little earlier, or maybe around the same time as as Eckhart. And mm. Luther, Martin Luther, actually really enjoyed Meister Eckhart's writings wow. and some of his ideas. <laughs> So in one way or another, yeah, you may actually have this this trickling down of influence from Marguerite to Eckhart, and then on into the mind. Wow, the mind of that's fascinating. So can you tell us maybe a little bit more about these works, like different things that she's written that you just briefly mentioned? Um, yeah, is there anything else that we can know about, like the content of it, and you know what what these things were about? Yeah, so we only have we only have one extant work from from Marguerite, uh, but okay. it is I mean it's 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 decently lengthy. It's it's broken up into about a hundred and forty something, maybe right at around a hundred and fifty what she calls chapters, uh, but they're not exactly chapters in the way we think of them. Uh, mm -hmm. They're more divided up into these types of prose 
scenery that is mostly dialogue between these various figures. So you have kind of like the, the, the primary character whose name is simply the soul and the soul indirectly, or maybe even in a certain way directly represents Marguerite. And then the other two major characters are uh, those of, of love and reason. And so mm-hmm. what what's happening in all of these chapters and throughout all of this all of this dialogue cuz the the whole book is is essentially either love reason and the soul conversing with one another mm-hmm. and like she kind of identifies who is speaking almost almost like a like a play script and mm-hmm. then there are times when the soul kind of goes out on a soliloquy and kind of um produces these long inner inner thoughts and and there's other times um there's like some poetry that sort of interspersed throughout some of the figures provide this poetry other times it's sort of pinned in there uh there's also there's also a lot of other um minor characters who will just kind of pop in every once in a while and they are anything from a character called intellect, a character called <laughs> understanding, a character yeah. called oh charity, et cetera, et cetera. And and it it really reminds me of kind of someone sitting alone, contemplating and running through these imaginative conversations in their mind, but doing so in a way that this conversation is actually happening, which is actually, to a certain extent, what the contemplative life centered on and what a mm. lot of the Christian mystics experienced. And it's, it, it, it is different from, from a lot of other mystical writings, uh, but it also shares a lot of, a lot of the same themes. Because the the idea of Christian mysticism is essentially the idea that a person can experience union with God Mm. in this life, maybe Mm. not to the extent of union with God upon death, um, Mm. but they, they all held to the belief that there was either a deeper or a mm. higher kind of existential experience of God in one way or another that was mm. accessible in the present life. And mm. usually that's what got the mystics in trouble because in one way mm. or another they would begin to, uh, and, and even even what, what Marguerite says in her book, that the church isn't necessary as a mediator between God and humanity that uh, the practicing of good works uh, was not the explicit way that someone drew closer to God in the in, in the spiritual mm. sense um, oddly enough in the book she has a very high view of of the Eucharist of communion 
which I think, mm. <laughs> which I think is a little odd because everywhere else <laughs> in the book, she 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 despises theologians, she despises wow. priests, she she does not like monks, she doesn't even like other beguines. <laughs> monks. In, in, in the, <laughs> she doesn't like the, anybody. No, she didn't like any. She did. She did what not did? like anybody except God. Wow. <laughs> no wonder she lived by herself, like out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly and and she she finds a way in the book to to excuse and provide reasons <laughs> for for all of this because wow. that is the that is the purpose of the character of of mm. reason um she'll 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 posit the soul saying something or asking a question mm. the character of love will respond and then the character of reason will chime in and offer the counterpoint that she knows that Marguerite knew people would be thinking about while they're reading this conversation between the soul and love. Wow. And then reason, reason like brings it up. Like it's, 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 it's kind of comic because even, even as, as I read it, I, I would I would get these these, these butt statements in my mind, and then uh, lo yeah. and behold, reason would pop up and say exactly what I was thinking, wow. and then love would come back and offer this reason as to why uh, reason is is essentially half blind. Like probably the most the most popular mm. um, and quote worthy, very pithy short statement that's in the book is simply reason you'll always be half blind. Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of, that's kind of the that's kind of the the running gist mm-hmm. throughout this throughout this conversation that's being had is that reason is only seeing half of the picture and love mm-hmm. is is seeing the the whole picture, but it's not necessarily love in the way that 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 you might think as when I say mm-hmm. when, when I say love because. Um, in Marguerite's thinking, uh, of course, most of the mystics were very, very heavily influenced by Neoplatonic thought. And so many of them had this philosophical idea, which was actually shared by a lot of people in, in the day, mm-hmm. that the essence of the soul was essentially co-eternal with God in a certain sense in the idea that all souls come from God's uncreated essence and that you okay. are your your soul is placed into your body and that the purpose of the Christian life is essentially to escape the body and for your soul to return back to God and for many of wow. the mystics that kind of union was also annihilation being that you would essentially cease to be an individual soul once you were reunited with God upon death. And so the purpose of a lot of uh, mystical effort and also the purpose of what Marguerite was doing in her own life and in this book is the idea that your soul needs to be annihilated and to actually be made one with God to the extent, there's really no other nice way to put to put it. To, <laughs> to the extent that you not become God in the sense that you replace God, 
but in the sense mm. that the essence of your soul returns back to the divine essence and you cease to be an individual, therefore you return back to what you once were, which Whoa. is the uncreated divine essence. And surprisingly, surprisingly, that concept is not the primary issue that the Inquisitors took with Marguerite or with a lot of the other... What the heck? Like, it like, gets worse? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the problem was, was practical. They, they okay. didn't really care so much these crazy wild ideas that these people are spitting out, but okay. it's the fact that they were rejecting the authority of the church, ah. and they were rejecting the authority of the crown, and it was the idea that we're getting these ideas straight from God, and we have this direct relationship with God, mm. and that's that's why the church wanted to wanted to get them out of the way because it it, it began chipping wow. away at at their power. Um, but yeah, there is, uh, we, which we, we, we can get, we can get into more of, more of the quotes, uh, later on, but I do have, mm. I do have a few, I do have a few passages that I, that I can bring up and, mm. uh, read and we can kind of, you know, get into the logic of, of, of how this, how like the ontology of the soul is, mm. is deified and it's, it's, it's actually really close to in a certain extent to the mm. Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking that uh, as you were explaining it, I was like, yeah, oh, the, okay. the Eastern Orthodox ideas of theosis yeah, and deification theosis. and, and, and yeah. all of that. So it's similar, mm. but I think that the way that people like Marguerite and, and also mm. even Eckhart to a certain extent and many other, many other mystics uh, to the extent to which they took it and the way that they explained mm. it probably would make, you know, even even the the Eastern Orthodox a little wary oh, of, of absolutely. There's definitely of, a, a number of holes in that theory. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. I didn't know any of this, so I'm learning a lot through through this. And it's interesting to also contextualize it, like because medieval sort of um, time period. Um, obviously, the scholastics were big in this time period as well. So you had like people like Thomas Aquinas just beforehand. And, and so obviously, when they're talking about reason, um, they have a reason to talk about reason because reason is not God, but reason has been elevated so highly by the scholastics at that time period. So it, it's interesting to me, um, yeah, that where, how she's emerged in that place and she's sort of juxtaposing love and reason. Um is there anything else that you want to say about like the works and the um, anything that she's known for? Was it were there any events that she was known for or different things like that? That um, like it surprises me that she was so popular, like because she's a loner and she doesn't like anybody, but everybody's reading her stuff. Like, yeah, how did this sort of happen? Like, how was she so popular? What's she known for in terms of like the events and and that sort of thing? As far as the events outside of the publication of her work and the two trials and then uh the the burning at the stake there really aren't any other events that that she that she that she's known for and there there may have been records may have been removed erased whatever but you know she, she was so popular again returning back to the language thing because she was writing in old french and so it was this it's this the way that she writes is really unique because she was familiar with the royal court. And that's the way that the dialogue 
seems to be taking the reader in the book. And so people began to be caught up in it because they could actually read it. It wasn't in, in Latin, so it wasn't that you had to go and learn Latin. I mean, of course, you would have to have been able to at least read French uh, to be able to read it. And so, so they get caught up in that. They get caught up in this very, almost, almost like a, a divine romance to a certain extent. And a part of that is also, you know, suggestive of kind of the, the larger influence of uh, the Song of Solomon, in 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 this in the in the use of the mystics as opposed to the scholastics because can I remember exactly who said this but there was someone I think it was actually a a Jewish uh, theolo medieval theologian um, but he said that uh, the Song of Songs was the is the canon within the canon because even in this even in this medieval era the the Jews saw the Song of Solomon as um, representing God's love for Israel and then of course the Christian aspect side of it was the love between Christ and Christ's church and so you see a lot of uh, very romantic language in a lot of the mystics and also in Marguerite and in the way that she structures the the mirror of simple souls and so as weird as weird as it seems, it it sort of reminds me of a of a soap opera to a certain extent. Because you know how like, like my grandma loves loves these soap operas. I was I was at my I was at my I was at my mom's house earlier today, and my mom and my grandmother were talking on the phone, and it got to a certain time, and they're like, "Oh well, my grandma had to go because her her soap opera had, had come on for the day." Yeah, yeah, exactly, but. But, I mean, really, the only thing that happens in these soap operas is people are just standing around in these rooms talking to each other about all the drama that's going on. Like, that's, that's, all, that, that's all that happens. And that, that's sort of the way that the book is structured in its dialogue. It's just these, these people standing around having these, these conversations. And then the third aspect that made this book so popular and literally spread like, like wildfire... Uh, was the fact that it was advocating this idea that in the life of the believer, there is a process through which individuals can draw closer to God than is or was available either through the church, through the sacraments, through the practice of virtues. And so that was appealing to people that there there's something beyond and there's something more now the way that marguerite structures it is there's um like six or seven stages that you have to go through and three kinds of death and um there's you know uh places that most of the people like in her in her opinion anyone who even begins this this walk like stops at stage two and the vast vast majority of people never progress past stage two even if they make it to what she calls stage stage one and then there are the those are who she calls the sad soul the lost souls and then the sad souls are the ones who get stuck at the fourth stage because they know that there's a stage and a place beyond that they simply cannot get to 
and so they're kind of they're kind of like stuck in this process. But it's still it's still the idea that people enjoyed. And so you take all three of those factors together: the readable language, the courtly romantic setting, and then this this idea that there's something more than what you have currently and those were the the three ingredients in this in this recipe for success in making her so popular and so what happens is that because of the popularity the inquisitors catch catch wind of this book because um you know as i was talking about philip philip the fourth or philip the fair earlier he uh, had had just begun a very nationalistic renovation of of the of the French kingdom, and it actually rested on this idea that um, God had so sovereignly chosen the, the the French nation and had blessed it, and that everyone was pious. And he actually went to the point of saying that that the 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 country of France, the kingdom of France, was like one of the three pillars that the church stood upon. And, but, but, but <laughs> it kind of, it, it literally sounds just like what we would think of in, in the modern day as super, super nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. We just, <laughs> we, 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 we won't, we won't get into that, but um, it sounds like it literally sounds like somebody copied and pasted it from, you know, the present day into, into that. And so, what what Philip wanted to do is he wanted he wanted to remain Catholic um, because he had really really good relationships with the the French bishops, but he didn't have a good relationship with the Pope because at that time France was at the height of its power, the height of its influence, and he did not Philip did not want to share the throne with the Pope. And he kind of he sort of had to so so he began to distance himself from Rome and from the papal authorities and tried to invest more authority into the local French uh, bishops and and farther farther on down the line like giving more autonomy uh, to the to the French monastic orders giving more autonomy to even the local uh, the local priests etc. And in doing this, the first group that he actually went after were the the, the Knights Templar, because um, essentially they had been they had been into some really weird stuff. Like they they started out as as a good group, and then as they kind of like transition into the first banking group, they they started amassing wealth for themselves. So the way that Philip the French got at them is that he accused them. Of of hair of idolatry, heresy, and homosexuality, and so, so, so he accused him of the, he accused the knight the the knights of those three things, and at first the knights fought back like they they mounted this defense and and here you have all like the the these wealthy religious knights and they try to defy the French king and that doesn't work out too well and a, a very large number of them end up getting burned at the stake. And so the people of France really liked this, though, because the Knights Templar was also this international group that was that that answered to the Pope and the Pope alone. And so people were like, "Yeah, let's get rid of let's get rid of the the, the Templar Knights." And 
they that they wanted to feel secure not only nationally but also religiously and so once the hype of the templars started dying out marguerite was the next person who fell onto the radar of, of philip but and not only onto philip but also all of his inquisitors so you know they're getting together saying hey there's this french woman she's really causing waves because you know she 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 vouched for sort of autonomy from the church but but philip wasn't wasn't ready to go that far because that would then put his individual subjects out of his hand. So he still wanted the church, but he wanted to be able to control the church who then controlled and influenced the people. And so, yeah, the, the popularity of her book and sort of the, the weirdness of some of its teachings just made its way up the ladder. And, you know, the, the wheel that squeaks the loudest gets the grease, or in this case, gets the flame. And so she had, she had one inquisition... Uh, by by a French inquisitor, and then also by uh, by a, a bishop. Uh, I think he was actually the bishop of Paris at this time. And so they they start asking her all these questions. Uh, she won't respond to them. She just says nothing. And finally, at the end of the trial, they say, "Okay, we're just we're you know we're gonna we're gonna let you go free. Um, you won't be in trouble as long as you stop copying these books and you stop handing them out." And we're not going to make you recant what you wrote because, like, it is fringe. It's heterodox, you know, maybe not fully orthodox, maybe not, like, full heresy. So at that point, they weren't just trying to get her to totally recant what she had written and what she had done. They just wanted her to shut up. They just wanted her to stop producing this book because she was getting too popular. It was dangerous. Um, and and Philip was, was on a roll, and the, the heads were on the roll at this point. So, of course, she doesn't listen. <laughs> and so in just a few years, like in like four or five years, uh, she, she's back again. They have another trial. Again, she literally does not say a word as far as we know. Like she just, she just stands there and listens. And she won't recant. She won't do anything. So they, they, they put her in prison for a year. At the end of this year in prison, as I said, this other guy, Garad, who kind of had like stepped up as her protector, um, he recanted at the end of the year of imprisonment. So instead of killing him, they just kept him in prison for the for the rest of his life. Uh, but Marguerite would not recant. She would not, like I said, would not say anything. So they they took her out and like on uh, sometime at the beginning of June in 1310. They they took her to the stake and they they burned her alive, and uh, that was that that was the end of uh, that was the end of her author career. Yeah, as you would assume. Wow, that's intense. Um, so I, I love how you mentioned before um, that there is a trickle effect from her writings um, that influenced eventually Luther. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the influence that she has had, you know, on Luther, on the modern church? And is there anything that we can learn from her today? Anything that's sort of redeemable out of her writings and her thoughts? Um, or is it all just complete heresy and we should, you know, um, not listen to anything she says? So um, 
I'll start with the end and then work my way backwards uh, with, uh, with with those questions. So I think on the macro level, as far as her book as a whole is concerned, it probably would be best if those who are not prepared uh, just simply stay away from it. Uh, or if you know, maybe if you're just reading it just to kind of educate yourself, you wanted to get want to learn more about medieval mysticism, you want to learn more about the Beguine uh, movement, you can kind of get in there, but the the whole concept of her book and once again this is not even necessarily what got her in trouble but the concept of the book is that it supersedes scripture not not just the church but it also supersedes scripture and so in the writing of the book in this dialogue between the soul and love love is telling the soul the these words that you are writing are essentially above and beyond anything that has been revealed before. And therefore what, what you are writing is more important than what the church says. It's more important than what the narrative of scripture says. Um, but even in that she still retains an extremely, extremely high view of God and an explicitly a, a Trinitarian understanding of God. So as far as, as far as like Christ's divinity or the Godhead or the Trinity, like nothing, nothing in that regard is, is explicitly heretical. And even, even at this point, like they, they really don't get that upset that she's saying what I'm writing here is more important and more influential than scripture because that, that was essentially the, the unspoken idea of the church anyways, that, that tradition at least equaled scripture or that tradition essentially was, was more important and overrode that the scripture was the, the lesser witness, um, that it's sort of like the, 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 the foundation, but that tradition qualified anything that was unclear, uh, in scripture. It's the interpretation of what's written. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, in, in, in the modern day, you know, especially, especially in the, you know, of course, in Protestant circles, like that would, that would just be the, the end all be all in it. Like as soon as she comes out and says, okay, this, this, this truth is, is even more, more special or more mysterious, more divine than scripture. Like, you know, we, the, <laughs> the people would be ready to burn <laughs> yeah, yeah. that. Um, yeah. Even though they would agree that, yeah, you don't have to submit to the Pope and papal authority, and you don't have to have a priest as a mediator between you and Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, um, actually, I'm going to go back to the first question, and I'm going to address, like, the trickle-down effect. So, the way that that Porette either influenced Eckhart or at least thought along the same lines of Eckhart is in the idea of the possibility for present union with God and the complete crucifixion of the flesh and the complete crucifixion of the sin nature. And along with that, the idea that this annihilation of sin, this annihilation of the self, was a work only accomplished by grace and that that works and virtue have absolutely nothing to do with it. 
And so it's it's ultimately and only a divine work that begins to work upon the individual to accomplish this kind of, of divine union in the life of the believer. And actually, there, there there's a place explicitly in uh, the, the Mirror of Simple Souls where Marguerite just comes right out and says that uh, salvation is in no way dependent on works that that not only that salvation is only a work of grace and that the works of virtue as she calls them has nothing to do with salvation and the works of virtue also have nothing to do with union to god and again as i said before like that was that was probably the second biggest slap in the face to the medieval culture second only to define the authority of the church but the second one was the idea that your your virtue and that your works had no synergy with the grace merited to you in salvation and so you then have luther who comes along some you know 200 years later and he is saying this this the same the same idea and, and Luther even uh, refers to to some of Eckhart's writing because Eckhart was was German and so in that day and age you know of course Eckhart is going to be the more direct influence upon upon Luther and that's that's essentially the primary uh, trickle down effect that that was that was going on between uh, Perret and Eckhart and then into Luther. I think the way that this book speaks to us in in the present is that it reveals the desire within us, the desire of our souls or our spirits, whatever whatever kind of label that you want to put onto it, um, but the the desire to grow in love and to become closer to God and to become more more intimate in your relationship with God, uh, because in this day and age, um, the only two options that were well, three options that were being taught were you know you grow closer to God by taking the Eucharist, you grow closer to God by um, how much how much good you're doing, like you know working the virtues. And then, if you really want to take it to the stream, you to the extreme, you would uh, join a monastic mendicant order, and then you would spend the rest of your life unmarried, sort of disconnected from larger society. I mean, you would work and have have connections with society, but it was this very stringent, repetitive, ascetic, really, really crucifying the flesh in some good ways, not bad ways. And so at that time, you really only had those those three options. And so what Marguerite represents is this idea of individuals to be able to grow closer to God just in their, in their own life, by their own prayers, by their own devotion, by their love for God, and primarily a return back to the idea for Marguerite that in her book it is love, but but love essentially represents, or not only represents, but like love is Christ in the book. And so it's a return to 
the idea that Christ is the only mediator. And for, for Marguerite, it would, it would be love is the, is the sole mediator between uh, God and humanity. As you were talking as well, I was thinking um, some of the ideas about um, that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we also see in Wesley um, with his second blessing where you have that sort of immediate sanctification and then obviously that's worked out. Um, practically in your life. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm interested to know whether she also had an effect on him somehow through the little trickle effect as well. But um, I haven't I haven't read anything about it. I haven't read anything about it, actually. Hold on. I think I... Mm. Here we go. I actually, on my desk right behind me, I actually <laughs> have an edited uh, a book of, oh. of John Wesley's sermons. John Wesley. So, yeah, it's got the like a big uh, work of John Wesley. So I'm I'm just gonna go ahead and I'm just going to to look in the glossary real quick under Pete. Yeah. If uh, I I don't think he's going to really or... anywhere because I don't think that she would have been known at this at this at that point yeah. in the in the 1600s with with John Wesley. Would um, Would Eckhart have been known? Eckhart. Um. Let's see. Let's see. That would be, I would think, the same uh, uh, um, influence that it had on Luther. It could have potentially had on Wesley. Yeah, I don't see anything about Eckhart either, but uh, there is, I mean, well, Wesley, John would have called it Eastern spirituality. Yes. Um, but mm. he was definitely influenced by that kind of more of, a mystical approach to the Christian life. So I don't know. Yes. I'll, I'll definitely have to look into that. Um, I would say this, that the mm -hmm. way that, that I think that they would be very similar um, is the fact that, of course, you know, Wesley's definition of, of full sanctification is essentially love mm -hmm. working through all things. And mm -hmm. that was essentially yeah. Marguerite's definition. She didn't call it sanctification, mm -hmm. but she called it the mm. annihilation of the soul and the annihilation of the wow, soul yeah. was essentially the, the crucifying of, of her will and being replaced only by the divine will. Mm. So, that, so that everything that she's doing, everything that she's thinking and saying is just mm. the effect of God's will being done on and upon and in and through her. Um, mm. But of course, you know you don't have you don't have Wesley saying that. Oh, if you're sanctified, uh, that means that <laughs> that you are God in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's taking it too far, Marguerite. Taking yeah. it too far. Yeah. yeah. No, that's so fascinating. Oh my gosh, I feel like this is just like mind blowing because I I don't know any of this. It's, I'm really putting the pieces together. I'm really enjoying. Um, this conversation. So can you lead us maybe into some of the passages that you were talking about before, some of her writings and quotes, uh, maybe so we can get a feel for how she writes and what that sounds yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so let me see here. I'm going to go to chapter 30 in her book because the first 30 chapters um, is, is really thick to get through because there are like she goes through all of these really weird conversations and descriptions of like the nature of the soul and 
the nature of God and um, the nature of reason, the nature of love, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really not until you get to chapter 30 that she really begins to um, begins to shine, at least at least in, in, my, in my appraisal uh, for it. Oh, well, here we go. Also, um, chapter, chapter five of her book, uh, which is called Of the Life, which is called The Peace of Charity in the Annihilated Life. She's very, very wordy. Um, so <laughs> very complex, but, but in, in chapter five is actually where she says, uh, that the, the, the life of the annihilated soul is one who is saved by faith without works. But then she goes on to say some really weird stuff, like the one who does nothing for God, the one who leaves nothing to do for God, to whom nothing can be taught, from whom nothing can be taken, from whom or to whom nothing can be given, and one who possesses no will of their own. And so it's like it's like this idea that the person actually becomes as simple or as, as divinely simple as God in that the soul can can't be taught anything because they, they are unified with God. Uh, but you know, we, we we would often say oh, you know, nothing can be taken from us, from our life in Christ. But she goes the next step farther and saying, well, if nothing can be taken from us in our unification with God, then nothing can be added to us either. And so there's not really any kind of, of growth in the way that in the way that we like to think of it. Um, but anyways, that, that's, that's still in chapter 5. So I'm going to get to chapter 30. I'm going to... I'm scrolling... I'm scrolling. She's like I said, she's very, very wordy, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get down here because uh chapter thirty through like thirty five is really interesting because I love chapter thirty and then she she jumps from this really, really nice prose straight into the the most explicit parts of what we would consider heresy um directly afterwards. So okay, so let's see. So this is chapter thirty, um, which is called, which is entitled "How Reason Speaks to Love," in order that she might satisfy this soul by saying everything that she can about God. So that that's that's the title of the chapter, <laughs> and so so reason reason speaks first and says, "Ah, Lady Love," says reason. I ask mercy of you in praying that you satisfy this soul by saying at least all that one can say about him who is who is all in all things. Love responds, she knows this, for she always finds him there, that is, in all things. Appropriately, one finds something in the place where it is, and because he is everywhere, this soul finds him everywhere. All things are fitting for her, for she does not find anything anywhere, but that she finds God there. Now reason, says love, why do you wish that I satisfied this soul by saying about God all that one can say? And so reason responds, so that she can repose peacefully in her being of innocence without having to move or remove herself in order to hear you speak. And so love says, I will say it to you willingly. I certify to you, says love to reason, and I swear on myself that everything which this soul has heard about God and all one can say about God is at best nothing compared to what he is of and in himself, which never was said, 
is not now said, nor will ever be said. For compared to all that one ever says, all that ever was said, and all that one could allow to be said is nothing compared to him. So she develops this idea of God's unspeakableness and incomparableness, which is which is really nice. Um, and that is what sort of drives her to the extent that she has this idea that, that a person's soul, a person's will, and kind of like who they are actually has to be annihilated and removed in order to be unified with God. And so I guess the negative impact is, is that she actually downplays the value of the individual personalities that God gives to us because she sees individuality as needing to be erased and for the person to like be replaced. And even though we have that in the idea of dying to ourselves so that we can be raised with Christ, but all of that is for the purpose of living out God's will within community and for ourselves and what God has, has destined and called us to individually for his glory. Whereas Marguerite sees God's glory only being accomplished in the annihilation of us and, and, of, and of our distinctiveness. That's fascinating. Cause and, yeah, it sort of discounts the idea that we're made in the image of God and that sort of restoration of humanity being made in the image of God. And also doesn't really pay attention to like the crucifixion of the flesh. So if we just paid attention, if we put it in that box, like for me, I'm trying to think like if she just said flesh and she didn't say soul and the person, like I can, I can vibe with the ideas better. But yeah, as you said, because it's an annihilation of the complete person, um, it's taking away the beauty of the image of God in, in humanity and, and that will be restored um, in in the end, so in glorification. And- yeah, and and so I, I totally agree with you. Marguerite would not agree with you, and she would say that you and I are are lost souls because we because we are stuck on the second stage to pure annihilation. Because and she 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 has like a whole section, bunches of a lot of chapters, you know that that kind of respond. Even though I'm I'm totally on board with you on this, she definitely she definitely is not because um, not only uh, so I think I think so the the crucifixion of the flesh for her happens at the first stage and she says that that's that's only the that's only the entrance level into what she's talking about and it's actually not until the third stage that your spirit is annihilated, which is like the desire to grow spiritually through your own works and like your own attempts. So the first one is crucifixion of the flesh. The second stage is the desire to move or the desire to experience more, but you cannot experience more until you also experience the the, the annihilation or the crucifixion of the spirit and then once you go from the, the fourth to the sixth stage, the sixth stage is then the crucifixion of the soul or like the, the erasure of, of individual existence within your own spiritual life. So like, like she has it in there. It's like, you know, crucifixion of the flesh. Okay, yeah, good. 
Now we're going to crucify your spiritual desires, and then we're just going to crucify just wow. you as like <laughs> like as as your soul. You, yeah. Which like you know who knows? I don't know where she well she doesn't necessarily get that from scripture. She gets that from this this idea that that's how you get more of God. The only way to get more of God is to have the erasure of self. Um, because let's see. In, in, in and would you say that that's that influence of that Neoplatonist sort of idea? Like it's almost like she's mixing worldly philosophy and putting it into her spiritual, you know, revelation. And then it's becoming this ball of feces. <laughs> It is. It is. And like, listen, I make it, I make it no, I make it no secret. I yeah. am like, yeah. I put it this way. Neoplatonism is the thorn in my side. Like the, the, the influence that it still has in the, in the modern church, just in the way that people think about things. It is so unconsciously ingrained into the way that we even speak Christianese, like, like just, just simple language, that we use is so um, not necessarily platonically influenced, but neoplatonically through like the teachings of Plotinus and Plutarch and all of that good stuff. But yes, that, that, that's absolutely what, what's going on here in, in my opinion is that she, she's doing this. She's doing this through neoplatonic philosophy. And she may not even realize that that's what it's called because this was, that, that was, that was the way that you saw the world and that you thought of the world in this day, like, like even, even the concept that the soul is a, the true existence or like the inner core of a person is not the Hebraic way of thinking about, uh, about a person's life. Because, you know, even, even in Hebrew and to a certain extent in the New Testament, like there isn't an extreme amount of difference between the person's body, not their flesh, but just the person's body and their life or their spirit or their soul or their mind or what have you. But anyways, we, we don't have, we don't have the time. This isn't not, not, not the place, not the oh, place so for that, but I would go yeah. off on a whole, on a whole tangent. Um, but just, just another, another really, really, uh, really good thing that she says here in chapter 30 is that, uh, therefore, if I am, who is this speaking? Uh, this is, this is the soul speaking. So, and therefore, if I am discomforted by what is lacking to me, nevertheless, I am recomforted by the fact that nothing is lacking to him, for he has in him the abundance of all goodness without any lack. And this is the sum of my peace and the true repose of my thought, for I do not love except for his sake. Thus, since I do not love except for his sake, nothing is lacking to me. So the sound sound sounds really nice, right? She's you know saying that we don't have nothing. God is everything to me, et cetera, et cetera. But then, about a hundred chapters later, there is this. In my opinion, is like one of the best, but also the weirdest and kind of mysterious scenes in the whole book where God is listening to this conversation that's went on for like a hundred chapters. And then God steps in and asks these really, really weird questions. And 
neither the soul nor reason nor even love can answer the questions. And Marguerite just says, we all just gave up. And then she says, and then when we finally gave up, then we, then there was growth or something. It, it was like, it was like all of this, all of this process that she's just spent writing out all of, all of these, these, these nice sounding things. And she gets to the end and she's like, all of this is actually, even though love was speaking, it was actually just reason speaking as love. And now the only way to, to be unified with God is to abandon it all. And then once it's all... Do, do you know what that reminds me of? What? It reminds me of when, like, people are writing a story or something like that and they can't think of an ending. So they're like, and then I woke up and it was all a dream. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, exactly. It's like her, vis- her version of I woke up and it was all a dream. Exactly. And so maybe if, if we have time, Such a we'll, weird if, if we have time, we'll get there. But just real quick, I want to, I want to kind of skip onto some really dicey stuff here. Um, so in chapter 34, after she says a lot of really good stuff between chapters 30 through 33, uh, which of course, you know, the reader doesn't know at this point, but once you make it all the way to like chapter 140, you realize like you could just skip to chapter 140 and skip just, just not had to read all the rest of it because she gets to the end and saying, well, none of this really matters anyways. So you have to just stop being and only then are you unified to God. But uh, love is saying, as God has transformed you into himself, so also you must not forget your nothingness. That is, you must not forget who you were when he first created you and what you might become if he keeps your works and who you are and will be if not by the one within you. So even though the character of love says that God has transformed the soul into God's self, she she sort of backtracks and says, well, the reason that, that the soul can be considered God's self is because the soul is only considered God's self when the soul actually becomes nothing. And so it's fine for nothingness to be considered God's self because then that's not idolatry and that is not a created being trying to assume divinity because you become annihilated and become absolutely nothing. And then the absolutely nothingness of yourself is then deified into God. So you see the loophole that she, that she's trying to, trying to, trying to create there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like it, it makes logical sense, but then exactly. it's like, yeah. what well, are you what, saying? What is it? What, what like... does it even, what does it mean? <laughs> So, and, and then, and then in the very next chapter, she talks about how that the soul has always been loved by God because if God loves the soul eternally, and in the book, God being loved, saying that I have, I have, um, I have decided to never love anything else without you, and without you, I will never love anything else. And this is actually God or love speaking to the soul. And so then the then the soul and reason come to the conclusion that, oh, well, if God loves the soul eternally and without the love for the soul, or we would say, uh, you know, without the love for his people or the love for his children or whatever it might be, um, if that love is eternal, then it must also be the idea of, of eternal past 
as well as eternal future. And so then she begins to work in the eternality of the soul that like God has always loved the soul. And so God has always loved souls and souls have always been with God. And so they have also coexisted with God in eternity past, which, which is interesting because neither in Hebrew nor in Greek, uh, like, like in Hebrew, the word for eternity is olam, uh, in in Greek, it's you know Ionios or Ionios or you know whatever you conjugate it as, um, but like neither of those philosophically always mean time without beginning or time without end. Like that concept did not really solidify until Latin came along and Olam and um, you know Ion or Ionios was unilaterally translated as eternitas. But in Latin, eternitas does mean time without beginning, time without end, because of the Neoplatonic influence. And so she's working on this idea of eternity and of time, once again, from a Neoplatonic perspective, that if God loves me forever future, then God must also love me forever past. And if God loves me forever past, there must have been an object for God's love. So therefore, our souls have co-eternally existed with God since time didn't begin. It's, it's one of those things, like you said, it's, you know, in, in the system, it's making logical sense, but then you get to the end and you're like, what, what, what's the purpose of this? Like, what are the implications of, of all of that? It's, is crazy. And then, um, yeah, so let me, so yeah, you get through all of this and you get down to the very last part of the book and yeah. So the three questions that God asks are if, it were my will working through you that I should love another, would the lack of your will allow my will to be fulfilled through my loving of another? Very complex, very weird, complex questionings. And then the other question is, um, what if it were my will for your will to will my will that another loved you as much as I did. And then the third question has to do with like no love at all. Like, like if it, if it was a true fulfillment of God's love working through his will that has annihilated the will of the soul so that there be no love would the soul's love that has been annihilated allow for that to happen. It's like, this is really, really weird convoluted question that, 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 like I said, it, it, it gets the soul and love and reason to the point where all three of them say we have, we have no idea how to answer this. And then it just said, Oh, you know, congratulations. You, you, you figured it out that the answer is there, there is no answer, but, it's not in the idea that the answer is not there. It's that the answer is nothing. Like it is nothingness. And so it has to be pure annihilation, pure nothingness 
in order for you to have this special union with God that you're just going to have with God anyways when you die. So, like, why? Well, <laughs> you just go through this, this unnecessarily long, complex. So, so this is this is one of the this is one of the last chapters. This is basically just one little paragraph here. Um, chapter one thirty eight, and it's the idea of how the soul returns to her prior being or to her pre-existent state. So it's now this soul is in the stage of her prior being and so has left three and has made of two one. And we don't really know what that means. The the closest we can get to is she's talking about the three deaths that are required in her seven stages of attaining union with God being the, the death of the, the death of the flesh, the death of the spirit and the death of the soul. Yeah. Um, so this one is when the soul is melted into the simple deity. So it's the idea of the soul just kind of like being eradicated in God, you know. So who is one being of overflowing fruition in fullness of knowledge without feeling and above all thought. This is some of the older mystics coming through um, with like such as the work with uh, Pseudo Dionysius, um, who was sort of like the first really influential mystic who kind of jump-started the the um the the western medieval mystic tradition and he's all about you know god is above being and non-being so god has to be beyond being and beyond non-being and so like god not god doesn't feel god doesn't not feel but god is beyond being or beyond feeling he's beyond thought stuff like that so she's kind of that you can kind of see the the influence there coming out. And so this simple being does in the soul through charity or through love, whatever the soul does for the will of the soul has become simple as the divine. Such a simple will has nothing to do with the soul since it conquered the necessities of the two natures, being the nature of the flesh and the nature of the soul, at the moment when the will was given up for the sake of simple being, and this simple will, which is divine will, places the soul into divine being. So what does that mean, that the soul is, is in divinity? No one can ascend any higher, nor descend more deeply, nor can anyone be more naked. For whoever wishes to attain this nakedness must guard against the ways of nature, um, who lures in a subtle fashion as sun draws water from a cloth for nature deceives herself without her knowing if she does not pay attention with much great testing. And actually what she includes there in nature is the, the natural instinct to serve God through your own will. And so she's also including the, the, the necessity for sacrificing your own will, even though your own will is willing something good for God, it's still a sin and still wrong because it's not God's will willing it in like 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 her idea is that even if you will god's will you're still wrong because you can't you're not supposed to will god's will it's supposed to be god's will willing god in yeah yeah and so it, it's just yeah yeah and, and it's and it's not it ha it's actually beyond passive it's it's literally annihilation like your will isn't just passive anymore it has to be totally 
annihilated <laughs> and, and and done away with. So, so yeah, and that then then she ends oh 140 chapters in in the book, and she says uh, she ends it with saying, "I am a creature from the Creator, by whose mediation the Creator made this book of Himself." So she's giving she's ascribing divine inspiration to the book for those whom I do not know nor, and this is what her speaking, nor do I desire to know because I ought not to desire this. So she doesn't, she does she doesn't know who's going to read it. And she literally says, I don't even want to know who's going to read this. <laughs> Remember she doesn't like people. <laughs> she doesn't like anybody. Uh, yeah. 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 So she says it is sufficient for me. If it is in the secret knowledge of divine wisdom and hope, I greet whoever reads this through love of the peace of charity in the in the highest trinity who deems them worthy of direction by declaring in them the testimony of their life through the record of the clergy who read this book. This approval was made for the sake of the peace of the hearers and for the sake of your peace as well as we tell you about this seed that might be made fruitful a hundredfold for those who will hear and who are worthy. Amen. And that's how the book. Amen. Listen, this, honestly, she's not. She's not the worst. Like the reason. The reason you know when when we were talking about about who we we're gonna do this on, I'm like, well, maybe we could do it on a mystic. And I'm thinking, hey, Marguerite's not that bad. So, like, I mean, you know, if we if, if we were to like bring out Hat, Hadvich of um something Nor not Norway, but anyways, there's there's like there's there's some really really. Way far out there, mystics. Like there, there were some, there were some mystics that I became so uncomfortable with that I literally just, I, just, I just had to put this, I just had to put the content down, and I actually, my my grade was my grade was lowered because the professor was was criticizing me in in some of my papers because I just totally did not address some of it because of. The, the 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 nature of what was being said and so i was just like i'm uncomfortable with this i'm not going to address it i'm not going to talk about it i'm not going to include it let's go back to the very opening and the way that the way that marguerite opens this book is that she gives this story about a princess or a person who falls in love with this king and she cannot be with the king, and so she has a painting of the king made for her, and I don't, it's just this really weird, okay, so she says, um, when she saw that this faraway love who was so close within her was so far outside of her, she thought to herself that she would comfort her melancholy, by imagining some figure of her love by whom she was continually wounded in heart. And so she had an image painted which would represent the semblance of the king she loved, an image as close as possible to that which presented itself to her in her love for him and in the affection of the love which captured her. And by means of this image, with her other habits, she dreamed of the king. And that's, that's, how, that's how she starts out the book. And it's like, I mean, I, I don't know. It's something about like, 
you know, being in love with God and the book being this 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 image that this princess in the story had painted and like I don't I, I don't know. It's just it it's is really it's really awkward and it just comes out of left field and I, I don't I don't know if it's sort of anticipating the courtly, royal, very loving um aspect to it. Uh, but like, you know, wh- wh- one of the things that typifies a lot of these mystic writers is actually they grow that they go from romantic into explicitly erotic in some places. Thankfully, Marguerite does not go to the full extents and the full lengths that some of the other mystics do. Uh, that's about as well, all sort of. It gets sort of close to the line that that she that she draws in this, but. She just sort of like lays that out at the beginning of her book, and then and then goes from there, explicating it all, and um, yeah, just putting you out, setting you out on an awkward footing, and then throwing all kinds of stuff out there. The next thing she says when she opens up the book is uh, she says, uh, you know, to all um, theologians and all the clergymen who try to read this book uh, according to reason, you're all dumb and you're never going to understand it anyway. I think that there is some merit in the quote that we had talked about earlier, uh, that very just short, pithy statement of, you know, reason you'll always be half blind. And so mm-hmm. I think that, I think that, I think that there is value in, in remembering that, especially, you know, for us, for, you know, us as, as academics, um, there is something to say that, our intellect and our reason and our own human faculties can only take us so far. And from there it is, it is a work of God and it has to be a work of God to take us deeper and, and closer and into the inner life of God. And, um, in, in defense of what Marguerite and the other, mystics say um i will just you know read um let's see what is it i think it is ephesians 3 19 yeah here we go here we go three ephesians 3 19 um paul said paul kind of sounds like a you know a mystic writer here and to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. So I don't know, Paul, look at, look at what you've done here. You write, you write that. And then all these mystics like go crazy with like, Oh, love and the fullness of God. And we are God. <laughs> well, Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Uh, Matt, I forgot to mention, but Matt is also a kid's pastor, um, in Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah. In, in Southeastern Kentucky, uh, new hope ministries, Yes, and uh, also Matt is on Instagram. He's got a few uh, Instagram accounts, a few meme accounts. Matt, could you let us know where to find you on Instagram? Uh, yeah, so I am. I'm a, I'm a co-admin on Honest Youth Pastor. That uh, they they brought me on as sort of the um, the I guess the the, the in-house uh, scholar uh, who they can you know send all the questions that they don't want to answer to. 
and and let me try to trudge through the mire. But yeah, co-ed men on on honest youth pastor, and then I also have um, I also have have a meme page as well. Uh, Blessed are the meme makers, uh, which is where I go to express the really really weird side of my sense of humor. Because what 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 I do there is like I come up with these kind of weird Christian phrases and then plaster them on backgrounds that kind of have nothing to do with the phrase itself. But I but I do I, I do I sell, I sell stickers online of these phrases and it actually I mean they're they're actually doing pretty good. But the the the, the most popular one the one that sells the most is one that says I have no idea what I'm doing but I'm doing it for the Lord. So that is that that is that is my life's motto. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. Thank you for your incredible insight uh, into this particular mystic and, you know, also the world surrounding the mystics as well. Um, this theological discussion has been deep. It's been long. It's been incredible. Um, I've really enjoyed it and I, and I hope uh, everyone watching has enjoyed it too. Uh, thank you so much for everyone for joining us on the Eagle and Child podcast today. We will catch you in our next episode. See you soon. Thanks so much for tuning into the Eagle and Child podcast. That's all from us for today. If you want to support us, you can like, subscribe or drop us a review. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Eagle and Child Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Much love.